1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10, believers are not at home with sin. You would stand for reading of God's word. Verse 4, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin, for he has been born of God. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. This is the word of God. Please be seated. By now you know the theme of 1 John. That you may know, that you may know, 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 know that you have eternal life. He doesn't leave it a guess. He has all kinds of tests that he gives you. Last week we talked about God's incredible love. We talked about three main things about his incredible love. Who we are, who we shall be, and who we should be while we're here. Now who we are are children of God. And remember that word was technon in the the Greek. That you're born, again, that's a natural born child. And we know that we have to be born again of the Spirit because everyone that comes into this world comes into this world with their spirits dead. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We're separated from God. And in John 3, 3, Jesus talking to Nicodemus says, you must be born again to this religious leader who thought he had everything down in his his religion. Your spirit has to be given life. Now, why did God do this? He He did this because... He loves us. It was a love gift to us. And it says he bestowed his love on us. That bestowed was didomai. And it means to, 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 to confer, to put something into another's possession. God's love is a gift that he gives to each one that believes in him. Everyone who believes, it's a gift. It's a love gift. It's a love gift to humanity. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But those who believe, it's a special gift that he gives them. It cannot be earned. It cannot be purchased. It is freely given. If you're God's child, you have all of his love. This is great. The moment you say yes to Jesus, you have all of his love that he's ever going to give you all of the time. It is not based on your conduct. That's good news because sometimes we're not conducting ourselves so well. And in humanity, if you treat me bad, then I kind of don't want to be too close to you and that sort of thing. But God's love is not like that. God's love is all the time. He loves us immensely. And that, that just struck me. All of his love, all of the time, we never can, can do anything that will make him love us less or to love us more. And remember, because God loves us totally, fully, the world is not going to like us. Remember, Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. You can expect that from the world, even more so as the times grow darker. This is an expectation that we can have of living in a world that is running from God, in a nation that is running from God. It's an expectation that we can have. The world rejected Jesus. It'll certainly reject you. And we want to remember it's the world system that that is the problem. It's not the people of the world. The people of the world are victims. They're trapped. They're deceived. So we don't get angry with the people of the world that might be treating us in an an unusual way or an uncommonly nasty way. But it's the world system that we're living in that is controlled by Satan. 
and have no fear. He is it's controlled by Satan, but he is a defeated foe. Again, they're, de- they're victims of Satan's deception, and they need the truth, and they need the deliverance. Remember, whenever you have a conflict in the human realm, it, there's always some sort, at least it's for some degree, there's some spiritual force behind it. Now, how do I know that to be true? Because in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, we read these words, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, which is humans. It's not the human fight but against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this age. That's the demonic realm. It's real. There's a demonic realm that is behind conflicts that are going on. And against spiritual hosts, of ar- those are armies of wickedness in the heavenly places. Then he goes on in, the cha- in Ephesians chapter 6 to tell us what we are to do to survive this onslaught, and that is to put on the armor of God. And you can have a whole talk on the armor of God. But we must walk with our armor on, live in this world with our armor on. Don't ever become... Come uh, kind of passive and feeling like you're okay. I mean, you want to walk with continually with the armor of God on to be protected. Now, who we are, we're children of God, we're servants of God, and folks, we are armored up soldiers of God. That's who we are. Who we shall be, we talked about that last week, who we shall be is this, we'll be glorified, we'll be perfect one day. We're going to be in a state of perfection. Remember, the moment you said yes to Jesus, you were justified. You were declared righteous. Then you're living out sanctification presently right now, being set apart unto him. But all the third phase of your salvation is glorification. When we are transformed into the image of Christ, and we are taken to heaven, when our bodies and our souls are are, are brought together, I believe, at the rapture of the church, glorified, perfect, body and soul together. And who we should be here really speaks of sanctification, set apart unto God. He talks about being purified in chapter 3, verse 3, which is consecrated, set apart. Again, that's a sanctification process. Transformed into the image of God, becoming more and more like him, transformed by the renewing of our minds, our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions, more and more like Jesus. Now this week, John reminds his readers that sin is our nemesis. Sin is our enemy. Sin is the thing that we are going to have to fight against. And whoever abides in Christ, makes his home in Christ, will not be at home with sin. Will not be at home with sins. Will not be chummy with sin. Will not be comfortable with sin. Sin should be a discomfort to every believer. So this week, believers are not at home with sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. And Holy Spirit, please teach us today the things that you want us to learn. Lord, there's many things that are in your word that are kind of, kind of strange, like we should be, have no sin while we're here. What does that all mean? We're going to real, real, reveal that to us in just a few minutes. Help us to hear from you today. Help us to walk in the truth that you're giving us. Help us to leave here changed by the Spirit of God. Help us be closer to you, Lord. Help us to sense your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. So believers are not at home with sin. <laughs> Stephen Cole says this, and he makes an interesting observation. He says, polls consistently indicate that there is virtually no difference in America between those who claim to be born-again Christians and the population at large. Isn't that amazing? When it comes to sexual immorality, materialism, hedonism, which is the pursuit of pleasure, and worldview, that the church in America that claims to be Christian has a worldview that is much in line with the fallen world. Those claiming to be Christians think and act just as the world does. 
We may claim to believe in Jesus in the Bible, but our lives don't back up the claims. And I think he is so true. Good word, Stephen Cole. I'll say that there's nothing new under the sun. John dealt with Christians in his day, right out of the chute, dealing with people that were deceived by the enemy, deceived with a false worldview, professing faith, but living in ongoing habitual given over to sin. John had to deal with this. This week, John addresses this. He addresses sin in the Christian head on. Living in habitual sin is not the hallmark of a Christian. Now, uh, when I say habitual sin, it is written in the present tense, and I'll say this like 25 times so we get it, that it's, that it's when we talk about uh, habitual sin, it is ongoing, given over, you've given up practically, given, given into it. Okay, that's, that's the picture here. You cannot be chummy with sin. We can't cave to the world's pull, cave to our flesh feeling, Satan's attractive bait, which he has for each one of us, an attractive little nugget that he's, the demonic realm has been observing each one of us and knows where that nugget, right when to place it, right at the right time to draw us away. Caving is not the mark of someone abiding in Christ, dwelling in Christ, making his home in Christ. A simple truth is this. A person will either make their home in Christ, in his word, or they will make their home in this world, in its allure. You cannot be at home in both places. Either you're going to be in Christ, or you're going to be in the world. And oftentimes we transition from this. I want to explain that in just a second. Remember Kyle Eidelman, he wrote the book, God's at War. He said, God will cause you to choose between him and your idol. You cannot be at home with both. And an example of this is found in the nation of Israel in 2 Kings chapter 17. I'll just give you the background on this. Assyria in 722 conquered the 10 northern tribes. Samaria was an area that was conquered by the Assyrians. One of the Assyrian strategies was to bring in peoples from the other parts of the world with their gods and settle them in Samaria. So the Samaritans, or the Jewish people in Samaria, intermarried with the people of the world and then were introduced to their gods. Now watch what happened to them. Watch what happened to them. In 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 32, it says this, So they feared the Lord from every class. They appointed for themselves priests of the high places who sacrificed to them in the shrines of the high places. Now the high places are where they would worship the false gods. So they were worshiping God, and at the same time, they were worshiping the false gods. That's the, that's the picture here. They feared the Lord, yet they served their own gods according to the rituals of the nations from among whom they were carried. Now, there's something, there's a word called syncretism. Syncretism. And it means, it means combining different religions together. I'm going to expand on that in just a second. Just put that in your memory banks. Combining different religions together, thinking they're all okay. We can kind of just amalgamate all of them together. And God says no way because he warned the people in verse 35, you shall not fear other gods, nor bow down to them, nor serve them, nor sacrifice to them. But the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt with great power and an outstretched arm, him you shall fear, him you shall worship, and him you shall offer sacrifice to. You shall not be involved with any other gods from any other people group. He did not equivocate on this. Now watch what happens. In verse 40, he says, and this is sad, however, they did not obey, but they followed their former rituals. Their former rituals. 
what they were comfortable with with the other gods. I'll take some of this other God stuff, and I'll take some of the real God. And we'll kind of mix it together. God says, no way. I will not compete with another God, another idol. So these nations feared the Lord, yet served their carved images. Also their children, their children's children, have continued doing this as their fathers did even to this day. It affected them generationally in Samaria. Syncretism invaded Israel. And I believe that syncretism has invaded the American church today. We have something called Chrislam, where many people are trying to blend together the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Allah. Jehovah and Allah are not the same gods. They are not the same gods. Eastern meditation has crept its way into the church. Now, meditation is something that we see in Scripture. We're to meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. I delight myself in your statues. I will not forget your word, it says in Psalms. We're to meditate on. We're to fill our minds with. But, oh, Eastern meditation says empty. Empty and let something flow in. Oh, no. We want to meditate on your word, on your precepts. Yoga has come into the American church. The emergent church, embracing all ways to God. Just choose your path. They're all the same. There's no hell. Everybody goes to heaven. Universalism. Folks, we have syncretism in the church today, and God says no. We have to make a decision, folks. In Joshua 24, verse 14 and 15, which I won't read exactly, and I think you're familiar with these words, Joshua, at the end of his life, is speaking to the nation of Israel, and he's telling them about follow God, follow God. And he says, you're going to be going into this land, and in this land there's all kinds of foreign gods, and you're going to be bumping into them constantly. And he says to the people, we must determine this in our own homes today. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. No question about it. You cannot bring in things from the world into your home and blend it together and think that it's okay. We must make a determination. Who we should be while we're here, sold out servants of the true God. Those sold out to God, those who are all in, will never, ever, ever be at home with sin. Ever be at home with sin. Let's pick up our teaching today in chapter 3, verse 4. Believers in sin and lawlessness. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Sin is the word harmatia. Harmatia. There's actually a study in theology called harmatiology. It's a study of sin. And the word simply means this, to miss the mark, to miss the target. So what is the mark? What is the target? I can tell you unequivocally what God believes the target is, is perfection. Absolute perfection, which no human can have. We're always going to be missing the mark. Remember, his law shows us that we are imperfect, but the law is not imperfect. It says in Psalm 19.9, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The law is perfect, but who isn't? That's us. We are not perfect. <laughs> we are depraved. We are depraved. We are in badly, badly need a Savior. Badly need a Savior. So sin is the volitional breaking of the law. But lawlessness is this. Lawlessness is more than simply breaking the law. It includes an attitude of rebellion. An attitude of rebellion. I will do my thing. I will have my way. It's an attitude that I'm promoting against God. It's, even, it's, a, it's a ratcheted up thing. It's a ratcheted up thing. Now, most people think this. And tell me if you don't think this is true. Most people think their little wrong, 
The little thing that they're doing could not be interpreted as sin. It's a slip. It's a mistake. Hey, everybody has problems, and we start making excuses. Look, sin violates God's law. It's choosing to go your own way, doing your thing, doing it your way. Remember, God is perfect, and we cannot be before a holy God in an imperfect sin state. That's why we must be covered, covered with the blood of Christ. We must be covered with the righteousness of Christ. That is why we are justified. God sees us as he sees his son when we're saved. That's the only way we come into the family of God. That's the only way we can stand before God in Jesus' righteousness. It's not in us. It's in his righteousness. So sin is imperfection, falling short of God's glory, God's perfect nature. Now, how do I know this? Am I just making this up? Well, no, we know that the Scripture is replete with this. But I'll take you to an area of Scripture, Romans chapter 3, verse 10, which just lays the whole thing out perfectly. He says this, Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Okay, how many are born into this world righteous? No, not one. Okay, none, none, that's it. There's none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. God is seeking us. God is seeking us. We don't seek after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Look, there's a lot of good things that people do. But in the eyes of a holy, perfect God, a righteous God, our righteousness is as filthy rags, the Scripture says. We are tainted. We, are ta- we need a Savior. We need a Savior. He boils us down to verse 18. He says this, There's no fear of God before their eyes. Tell me if that isn't the state of the church in America today, where we can do whatever we want during the week and come and have a little worship session on Sunday and think we're okay with God. We can segment our lives off and say, oh, I'll give you this hour, God, and then I'll take the rest of the week. No, you can't do that. We cannot do that. Mankind's plight is hopeless. Then enters the hope of the universe. Oh, it's great. Then enters our rescue. Then enters our Savior. Then enters our sacrifice for sin. And I will suggest you, ask anybody in here, ask anyone what Jesus did for them. What Jesus did for them. He sacrificed his life for them. He gave their lives for them. Ask anybody, who rescued you from sin and lawlessness? His name is Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. He is. He's he's amazing. What a Savior. What a Lord. Verse 5. Believers, don't forget this. Jesus came to rescue us. Remember, we're not at home in sin. Jesus came to rescue us, verse 5. And you know that he was manifested or made known to take away our sins. That's a big deal. Cast them away from us. And in him, there is no sin. He is the perfect sin bearer. He's God in flesh, God incarnate. He's the second person of the Trinity. Perfect. He's the only one that could die for us. Jesus came to take away our sins. And notice the sins are plural. I believe when you were saved, he took away all your sins. Cast them away. Now, we, we sin, and we, there's, a, there's a division between us and God when we sin, but we confess our sins. To, re, to reunite with God, so to speak, at least in, 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 not in relationship, but in fellowship. 
to bring us back into community with God. Sin breaks that. We want to be back into community with God. He took, he took our sins away, but he also came in verse 8, 3, 8 says, to destroy the works of the devil. Now, that would be a hip, hip, hooray. That's a, that's a thank you, Lord, okay? And then also in Luke 19, 10, he said, he came to seek and to save the lost, which is who? All of humanity. All of humanity. And he also came to give us an abundant life. Isn't that great? An abundant life, not just there, but here while we're here. He's promised to give us an abundant life here. We can have his joy no matter what is happening in our lives. We can live above the garbage that comes at us. We can have his peace that passes all understanding, even living in the mess. Look, at Jesus did what we could not do for ourselves, folks. He rescued us and he saved us. He came to take away our sins. All our sins were placed on Jesus. There was an Old Testament picture of this, and it was, a, it was the feast day of the day. It's called the Day of Atonement. And I believe it's the most important feast day in the Jewish calendar. On the Day of Atonement, two goats were, you'll find this in Leviticus 16. I'm just going to give you the short version. One, one of the goats was sacrificed to the Lord. That was in Leviticus 16.8. And it was sacrificed as a sin offering, a sacrifice to cover the sins of the people. For that year. And this blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat and made atonement. Remember, atonement is an acceptable sacrifice assuaging the wrath of God. And that, that animal was sacrificed and it was sprinkled on the mercy seat, and everything that came in contact with that tabernacle had to be cleansed by the blood. Because priests would go in there who were contaminated and contaminate everything in there. So the priest had to be cleansed, the tabernacle had to be cleansed, all the all the elements, all the utensils had to be cleansed. Everything had to be cleansed by the blood of Christ. That was the first goat. The second goat was then called. It was called the Azazel. Azazel. And it's the scapegoat. It's the substitute goat. Aaron would place his hands on the head of the goat, and the sins of the nation were figuratively transferred onto the lamb, onto the goat. The goat was then taken into the wilderness, someplace by the Dead Sea and released. Now, Jewish tradition says this, not the scripture, but Jewish tradition says this, a red ribbon was tied on the temple door. And when the goat would take the sins into the, into the wilderness, that ribbon would turn white. When the ribbon turned white, the nation knew that God accepted the sacrifice. It happened every year, according to Jewish tradition of the Talmud, until around 30 A.D. when Jesus died. And then it never changed again. Because the blood of animals cannot take away sin. Only Jesus can take away sin. And the scripture says this, and this might be more meaningful for you, in Isaiah 118, Though our sins were as scarlet, they became white as snow. Red like crimson, they became white as wool. And as far as, in Psalm 103.12, as far as the east is, from the West. He has taken our sins from us. That is good news. That is good news. I can just say that. The scapegoat is a picture of Christ, the innocent Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made Him, God made Him, Father made Him, who had no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took on our sin debt. Jesus came for the express purpose of, of resolving humanity's sin curse and to give us an abundant life. 
now and in the future. He is a hope giver. I'm telling you, if you have an issue that you're struggling with today, it's always darkest before the dawn. God is a hope God. He will enter into your situation, and you'll be surprised what one single day can change in your life. He came to die to rescue us, and folks, that's called salvation. He came so we could be saved from our sins. Just ask any believer, Jesus came and rescued us. He came and he rescued us. Thank you. Verse 6 and 7. Again, believers are not at home with sin, so when you go home and say, what did the dude talk about? Believers are not at home with sin. Inculcate. We'll say that 25 times and you'll remember it. So, Verse 6 and 7. Believers with an habitual sin. These verses I, I want you to be, be careful with, okay? Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sin has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices, again, habitual, righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. This verse 6, whoever abides in him and does not sin has neither seen him nor known him. This is a verse that is used by people that believe in sinless perfection, that you can be perfect while here. That is not what this is talking about. This is written again in the present tense, and it's a general way of life. So let's develop this just a little bit. So be careful with this. Remember, the only time you're going to be perfect is when you're glorified, when you're taken out of here. While you're here, you will not be perfect. In case you don't know that, ask someone living with you. You will, you'll get the truth. you get the truth. Be careful with this. Now, there's an important principle here. Now, I believe this is actually kind of happening with this verse. When we sin, we set Jesus aside. We cannot keep Jesus in the center of our thoughts and volitionally sin. I cannot keep you right here because I would be abiding in him then. I would be mental, abiding, making my home in him. I must take Jesus out of the center and put him on a shelf. Get him out of the way so I'm not seeing him for that, for that few minutes, whatever I'm engaging in, okay? So remember, when we sin, we set Jesus aside, we put him on the shelf, out of sight, out of mind. At that point, we are not abiding in him, we are abiding in our sin. Isn't it amazing? We're abiding in our sin. We're doing our thing. In verse 7, it says this, let no one deceive you. See, there's a spirit of the age that is going across the world that is deceiving people. Let no one deceive you, saying that you're okay. You don't have to be so rigid. You don't have to pay all that attention. You don't have to be so stuffy. So they don't want you to have fun. Eat, drink, and be merry. Do your thing. And hear this one. Isn't this one of the spirits of the age that's flowing out there? Be true to yourself. Oh, just follow that feeling. Oh, that feeling, I got to follow. Yes. You want to get hurt? Follow that feeling. Follow that feeling. In verse 6, he says this. God says, the world says that. In verse 6, God said, whoever abides in him does not sin. Again, it's a meno, remaining, dwelling, making your home in. Abide does not sin are both in the present tense, a continual action, a referring to a habitual way of life, not, no setting Jesus aside. We don't want to set him aside. It's a habitual way of life. It's not talking about perfection, but a general direction of a person's life. You're in the battle. You're in the struggle. 
You're not giving up. You're persisting. You're persisting. You're pushing on. Now, there's a question that each one of us has to deal with. Each one of us has to deal with, and the question is this. What about believers with a sin they just can't shake? Now, I would bet you that that would apply to every one of us in here. Something that is just kind of nagging at us. We have a proclivity for something that is just there. What about that? What about those strongholds? The truth is we all struggle with something. Remember, sin is missing the mark of perfection. We all have done this. We all have done this. Now, there are many things that are sinful. There are many things that are strongholds. If you're a Christian and you're in the Christian community, you have the list. Abortion, homosexuality, drugs, alcohol, smoking cigarettes, playing cards, going to the movies. You got your list, okay? But then the Christians have their list that they ignore. The gossip, the worry, the critical spirit, the arrogance, the pride, the jealousy. And guess what? We all can contribute. We all have this one, gluttony. At some point, you're a glutton. We all have that. We all have that. God has given us something to help us. He's given us the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He's given us his spirit that says, hey, get back on the right path. Hey, walk it right. The Spirit of God is for you, folks. He's for you. But you also have this. He's given you a conscience. Conscience. C-O-N, part of that word is with shunts knowledge. With knowledge, we either agree with God or with knowledge, we go against God. We rebel against God. Ask yourself, is my conscience still sensitive to God? Is my conscience still good or has it been seared or has it been corrupted? Because that can happen. It says that in Scripture. Where you're no longer convicted by your conscience. And you've said, no, 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 I'm going to have my way, have my way. It's a dangerous place to be. Now, things to do. Things to do to not set Jesus aside. To not give up and give over and that sort of thing. Things to do. First of all, memorize. For all strugglers, I would suggest this verse for you. Because I memorize this verse for me. So maybe it'll help you. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this isn't talking about salvation. We're not getting ourselves saved. This is the sanctification process. We've already been justified, and we are to walk in newness of life. We put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. What does that mean? That means if I have trouble, if I have trouble with pornography, I have an accountability person. I have that computer. People know where I've been. If I have trouble with alcohol, I'm not going to go be going to the bars. If I have trouble with, if I have an eating disorder, I'm not going to be going to work at the hostess cupcake factory. I, you know, whatever it might be. Yeah, you make no provision to the flesh to fulfill its lust. That word lust is epithumia. Remember, the battle is in the mind. Upon the mind is what epithumia is, upon the mind. And it actually means the diseased condition of the soul. See, our souls, our minds are, are diseased. They need transformation to become not diseased. So that's the first thing. Romans 13, 14, highly recommend you memorize that and highly recommend you put in safety things in your life to help you with your little area of whatever it might be of weakness. Second thing is, 
is something very similar. It's found in Colossians chapter 3, verse 8 through 14. Turn there with me, if you would. Colossians 3, verse 8 through 14. We won't read every verse, but you're going to get the gist of it. You are to put off the old man and put on the new man. Now, again, that's something that we do through the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't just say, okay, I'm going to just do it on my own. No, it's through the power of the Spirit of God living within us. Watch what it says. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, but now you yourselves are to put off all of these. Who is to do this? You yourselves. Why are you to be able to, why can you do this? Because the Spirit of God is dwelling in you and gives you the power to do it. You got to walk in the strength that He gives you. You can put off, and He gives you a list anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you've put off the old man as he put on the new man as a renewed in knowledge, and so on. And then in verse 12, He says, We are to put on the new man, to put on tender mercies, kindness, humility. Meekness, these are all things of the Spirit. These are all things of, this is not the flesh. This is all things of the Spirit. We are to walk in the Spirit, okay? Long-suffering, bearing with one another, isn't that something? It's the biggest problem we have in Christendom. We, we don't bear with one another. We run over one another. We avoid one another. We don't try to bear with, put up with one another. That's what actually it says. Forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, you also must do. That's a command. That's a command. It's an imperative. But above all things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Folks, we have to put off the old man, put on the new man, take captive our thoughts. The third thing is walk in the spirit, Galatians 5.16 and you will not fulfill the lust, the epithumia of the flesh. You will not fulfill it if you're walking in the Spirit. And then the fourth thing is this. We are to practice righteousness. That is in our verse today, verse 7. Practice righteousness. Now, guess what? If you're going to practice righteousness, if you're going to practice anything, what does that imply? I'm going to have to be involved in it. If I'm practicing basketball, what do I have to do? I just don't, okay, uh, uh, I'm practicing now. Yeah, no, you're in it. You're in it. You're in it. You're practicing. You're in it. You're practicing baseball. You're, hit. you're, you're, you're in it. You, it takes effort. It takes work. It takes diligence. It takes dwelling in Christ, abiding in Christ. That's what it takes. It's not an automatic. You just don't say the words. It takes effort to do it, effort to do it. Again, this is written in the present tense, and it's an habitual way of life. But it, remember this. No matter how we persist in this, as humans living in this world, and as being as depraved as we are, we're not perfect here, we will have slips. We will have times when, when we regress to our old, old me. You don't want to see old me. Remember, I've said this many times. What do you want to do with old me? Put him back in the box. Cover him up. Stick him in a corner. Get rid of him. So what happens when we go back to old me? Well, God has made a wonderful, wonderful provision. We confess and don't cover up. We confess and don't cover up. Don't blame. Don't make excuses. Remember our forefathers, Adam and Eve. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. In chapter, in verse 6, 
They've taken of the fruit. They've engaged in sin. Their lust of their eye took over them, and they engaged. And the first thing they did after they sinned was cover up. They made fig leaves for themselves. You know what that is? That's a religious move to try to do something to make yourself okay with God. That's a religious move. They felt the discomfort, and they wanted to get rid of that discomfort, so they tried to cover up. Religion says, do something to cover your sin, and God says, confess your sins to me. I've already seen it. I've already seen it. Confess your sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all, all, all unrighteousness. He's a great God. Just own it, confess it, agree with God that it is sin, and move on. You don't live in the mire of that. You, you say, I've done it. God has forgiven you. One of, the, one of the biggest things you have to do when, when you've sinned and you've fallen short, God forgives you immediately. You have to forgive yourself. You have to forgive yourself to not live in the guilt and the shame of whatever you've been involved in. You've been forgiven by the God of heaven. And it is wrong for us to keep ruminating on that. We must move on, press on towards the goal to win the prize. Evidence that you are abiding in Christ and practicing righteousness. Oh, we need to know this. And I want you to think about this. Think about the fruit of the Spirit. Now, the fruit of the Spirit, we've been through this many, many times, are evidence that you are practicing righteousness, a byproduct of abiding in Him. Fruit will occur. If I am abiding in Christ, if I'm spending time with Him, if I'm spending time in His Word, I'm spending time with His people, I'm spending time in prayer, I'm spending time in meditating on the precepts of His Word, I am abiding in Him, and fruit will naturally occur. You don't have to say, oh, I'm going to really work on peace today. Peace. Oh, come peace. No, it doesn't work like that. If I abide, it's a natural outcome of abiding. So that's what we want to remember. This is a changed, transformed you. Hear the word of God. Hear the word of God in Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the Spirit is, and you know the list, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And I would suggest to you that love is the anchor in which all those other ones come into existence. And notice the last one, self-control. Yes, we American Christians can have self-control. You do not have to have the second Whopper at Burger King. You can just eat the one. Whatever your self-control is, yes. Curbing our fleshly impulses is self-control. But it goes on to say, those who are Christ have crucified the flesh. We have crucified. That's something we do, again, through the power of the Spirit. This is sanctification. This is growing. This is growing with his passions and desires. And then it says this, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. I like the, the NIV. It says, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Oh, we don't run ahead of God. We don't lay behind. We walk right behind him. He is the paracolito. He is our helper. He is our comforter. He is, we are right alongside. He moves, we move. I'm keeping in line with the Spirit of God. Walking right with him. I'm not trying to go too fast. Oh, catch up with me, Holy Spirit. Leg behind. You know, he's saying, catch up with me. 
No, we keep in step with the Spirit of God. We want to live a transformed life. A natural result of abiding in Him is a changed life, is fruit. Finally, verses 8 through 10. Again, believers, what's, what's our topic? Believers are not at home with sin. Verses 8 through 10. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Can you say yay? Aren't you glad? Yes. Verse 8 through 10. He who sins is of the devil. Remember that. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, made known, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Isn't that great? Whoever has been born of God does not sin. Another one of those troubling verses, isn't it? For his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Really love your brother. Not lip service, but really love your brother. That's a big deal. That's not natural. See, that's only Holy Spirit stuff there. See, the natural thing is, is I'll say I love you, but I really don't. It's really a Holy Spirit thing. Remember this. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. The first to sin in God's creative order was the devil. Was the devil. Remember, devil is diabolos. He's the accuser, the slander. And in his arrogance, in his hubris, in his pride, he slanders and accuses God. All unsaved people are under the influence of Satan. Their sin reflects their satanic origin, reflects their ruler. Now think about this. Whenever a believer sins, that's all of us, whenever we sin, we are acting in accordance with our old nature, and Satan is ecstatic. He is just jubilant. Put on Jesus. Do not put Jesus on the shelf. Do not put Jesus on the shelf. In verse 8, it says again, He who sins is of the devil is in the present tense. And again, it's habitual sin. Habitual, unconfessed, given over sin, servant of the devil. Jesus' death and resurrection destroyed the works of the devil. So when you think about Jesus' death and resurrection destroying the work of the devil, the sin curse has been cast out. Death, the death curse has been cast out. We really don't die. We just transformed. We're translated, transferred. We are from here to there instantly, never separated from God. Enslavement is cast out. Discouragement, deception. The ownership of Satan is cast out. Hear this word. The word destroy in the Greek means to loose, to break the chains. Jesus came to destroy, to break the chains that Satan has on humanity as he holds us all captive. We can't break the chains. Religion can't break the chains. Wishing and hoping can't break the chains. But Jesus, when you say yes, broken. Broken. Instantly. Instantly loosed. Instantly loosed. John is making the point that if we tolerate sin in our lives, we are siding with the devil against Jesus. Isn't that something? It kind of hits you right in the solar plexus. And he came to destroy the works of the devil. When I sin, second time for emphasis, when I sin, I'm siding with the devil against God. And that is sobering. That is sobering. The good news is this. Satan's chains have been broken. Yes. Yes. God's seed remained in us, 
Christ's seed is in us who believe. He remains in us. He dwells in us. Folks, that speaks of security. His seed remains in us. And it's good news. Good news. The seed is in you. The nature of God is in every believer. Every one of us, the nature of God is in us. 2 Peter 1.4, we are partakers of the divine nature. Yeah, the Holy Spirit presence is in each person. He's home in you. How do I know that? Because in several places, but I'll just give you one. 2 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20 says that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The naos is the temple, N-A-O-S in, in the Greek. And that means that's the holy place. God resides in our spirit, in the holy. It's like the holy of holies in the temple. It's the holy place where he dwells and gives us life. And remember, your spirit comes to life and allows you to connect with God. We cannot connect with God unless our spirits are made alive. We are separated from God until it's made alive, until Jesus comes in. We cannot. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That is so important. Because of Jesus, you do not have to act in your old nature. When something comes up, you have the ability to say no to the flesh and yes to the spiritual aspect of you. That is the truth of it. Verse 10 says this, John does not hold back. Either we are a child of God or we're a child of the devil. He does not equivocate. There's none of this mishy-mashy stuff with John. So a test for you. Now, God knows. This is a test for us. All these tests are for us. He already knows, okay? These proofs that you are a child of God is that you practice righteousness. It's a lifestyle. And if you are really a child of God and you're not practicing righteousness, guess what happens? The Holy Spirit will pester you. Your conscience will pester you. And if you persist, then you get to have discipline. And God is so kind and so generous and so gracious, he will leverage on you only what he has to, to drive you back to himself. That's the most important thing, is that we're driven back to God. Not that we're happy in our sin and we're just happy, happy, happy in this life, but that we're walking in concert with him. And the second thing is, is love your brother, even ones who irritate you. You know why John's saying this? Because the Gnostics hated everybody that didn't just agree with them. They hated everybody that didn't just agree with them. Cast them off. You're not worth talking to. No love for them at all. But we're to have a love, a love for the brethren and a love for the lost. We're to have that. He goes all the way back to, John started this in, in, in 1 John 1.7, that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with the other, koinonia, one with the other. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins. Christian fellowship, love for the brethren, it's a hallmark of abiding in Christ. Let me say that again. Christian fellowship, love for the brethren, is a hallmark of abiding in Christ. Being long-suffering with one another is a hallmark of abiding in Christ. A little short fuse, a little thing, you did something to me and I'm gonna, I can't deal with you. That is not abiding in Christ. Look how much God puts up with us. And he just asks us to put up a little bit with one another. Jesus came to destroy, folks, the works of the devil. In conclusion, believers are not at home with sin. 
Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. We know that. And he did this, and we know this. We know everybody in here knows how he did it by dying a horrific death on the cross, and he did it for you. And he experienced the full wrath of God. All of God's wrath was poured out on the Son that we deserved, I deserved, weans deserved. He was the innocent Son who took all the wrath of God. And whoever believes that Jesus did this for them, and receive the gift of salvation, the free gift, are redeemed, they are saved, born again. And a true believer will never, ever, ever be comfortable with sin. They'll never be comfortable. Their conscience will plague them. The Holy Spirit will convict them. What a difference Jesus makes in our lives. And I will submit to you, go ask anyone who Christ has changed, who he's really changed, what he means to them. What does Jesus mean to you? Sin destroys, and Jesus came to bring life and to bring it abundantly. Just go ask. Just go ask someone that God has changed, someone he has, he has touched and changed. Folks, believers are not at home with sin. That is the message. Just go ask anyone what Jesus means to them. Go ask what he has done for them. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time. Thank you for the hope that you give us, allowing us to study your word. and. Thank you for your presence in our lives. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. Thank you that you are the one that gives us courage to go on. Thank you for the one that holds us and hugs us and comforts us in our times of trouble. Thank you that you have promised us your joy. These words I have spoken, that my joy may remain in you, and your joy may be full. That's in spite of what's going on. He's promised us his peace, Lord, the peace of God that passes all understanding in spite of what's going on. This is a hard world. It's a hard world, Lord. It's not easy here, and you know it. You were here. But you've given us the tools to navigate through it. I pray that each one of us will utilize and live in what you have given us, to live above the situations that we're in. Thank you for this time to study your word. And may we abide in you more and more every day. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.